Well, we want to uh, thank our guest, Nadine Nakagawa, who is the city councillor for New Westminster and, uh, and our anti-racist podcast for Foundation for a Path Forward Islam Unraveled. Uh, we wanted to have a broad ranging discussion on uh, Nadine's background and her work, her journey. So to start off, Nadine, if you'd like to maybe just talk about how you got into, uh, into uh, politics and uh, what your personal journey was to, to, to serve in public office. Sure. Um, well, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited about the work that you're doing as well. Um, I came to politics from community service and community activism. So I have a background of working in social service organizations um, and really just generally serving the public and, and both the general public, but also people who are most marginalized. So. Um, for example, I've worked with women and children who are homeless, for example, uh, people who have substance misuse or mental, severe mental health issues. Um, and I have done a lot of community organizing and community activism. And so to me, community organizing means bringing people together to sort of better understand or address issues, uh, shared issues in our community. So that can be things like reconciliation. Um, that's a big one. New Westminster is on the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Halkomelem speaking people. It's the original colonial capital of British Columbia. And we have a long standing history of displacing Indigenous people. So um, brought together folks to have a conversation about what reconciliation can mean in our community. Um, I've done work on, on housing, active, um, you know, advocating for, for housing, both for people who are homeless, but also missing middle housing, like across the housing spectrum. Um, done some public space and, and art projects, some community murals, but brought together the community to, to do placemaking initiatives. Um, so that's what I really enjoy is getting to meet lots of different folks in the community, bringing people together. Um, and I think better understanding our shared experiences. Um, and I used to work for the MLA for New Westminster, so in provincial politics. Uh, Judy Darcy, she was also the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Uh, she went on to be the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. So I got to see that level of government. And I really enjoy provincial politics because it's issues that I deeply care about, like housing policy, um, disability and income assistance, healthcare, education, like all the really big issues are in provincial politics. Um, and yet, local government is really closest to people, right? It's issues that affect us every single day. Um, it's like the sidewalks outside your house, right? It's how they how we pick up garbage and recycling. It's it's our local parks. So um, I'm really excited about local, local politics. So I ran in 2018 um, with a group of people and I was successfully elected. Um, and along with Chinu Doss, I was one of the first people of color ever elected in the city of New Westminster, which is quite astounding since, um, since we are a very, very diverse community. Um, and I think representation is deeply important. So um, since then, I've gone on to co-found the Feminist Campaign School, which is about trying to encourage more folks who are underrepresented to run for local government and really run centering their strong values of, of standing up for and serving community. Well, that that's amazing work. And Nadine, in terms of you know how we connected originally was uh, stop Asian hate and and areas around racism and discrimination, and we are as you know a, a diverse community uh, not only in New Westminster but throughout the Lower Mainland. However, uh, even in such a cosmopolitan uh, part of the world, uh, racism is alive and uh, and uh, being propagated in many ways, especially with online uh, and social media being weaponized to. 
uh, of disinformation against various communities. So because of that, we're living in unprecedented territory where, uh, uh, as we've seen in the Capitol, or the, the Capitol riots January 6th, uh, these beliefs are widespread and, uh, and deeply held. So in keeping that in mind, racism, discrimination, and then obviously people who perpetrate racist acts, as well as the victims of racism, there's mental health issues right across the board. And so it's like almost everything intertwined in a certain way. So perhaps we could talk about, um, you know, again, these are broad discussions, First Nations reconciliation, the Black community, the Asian community, Muslim community, and others that are facing different levels of discrimination, and, and then the mental health issues as a result. And, and in your view, based in a, a seat of, of, uh, of uh, being an elected official uh, and who can affect a measure of change, what are your thoughts based on all these existential issues that are facing our communities? So what are the solutions that, that you think could help, uh, help our community? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously this is a complex issue and it's not something that there's, you know, we tend to really want one answer, right? one silver bullet that'll address it. The biggest issue, well, I think there's two big issues that come to mind for me. One is social disconnection, that we don't know our neighbors and we don't know members of our community. And this has actually been exacerbated, exacerbated in COVID. Um, I live in an apartment building in a neighborhood in New Westminster called the Brow of the Hill, which is a lot of um, like older low-rise buildings and some taller apartment buildings and it tends to be a lot of new immigrants a lot of seniors a lot of low-income folks who live here and we also know that this type of building form tends to uh, contribute to social isolation and so I think this idea that we actually have no reliance on our community and very little community connection has allowed us to be more hateful and I think that we see that that abuse that we've seen online for a number of years now coming out actually into the public sphere that you know used to have to hide behind a, a username or a computer. And now we've been given permission you know, by some leaders, uh, political leaders and community leaders um, to actually take that into real life. But I think that better community connection is actually one of the biggest ways that we can address that. The other one is uh, inequality. We know that the most unequal societies are, um, are, are the most unsafe actually. And so I think that when we make people feel desperate and in competition with each other, that actually leads to um, more ways to say, well, that person got something when I didn't. You know, we've seen this, for example, um, when we, when the government, the federal government announced that we are gonna take in a lot of Syrian refugees because of this, the ongoing violent civil war there, that all of a sudden people were saying, well, but hey, but what about me, right? And I actually think that we have enough resources and enough wealth in this country that we could actually take care of everyone's needs. It shouldn't be a competition between refugees and seniors in, in, in BC. It shouldn't be um, a competition between um, working class folks and people living in poverty. Those, those are false competitions that we're sending out for resources. But I think it actually tends to lead to people feeling more desperate and more competitive with each other. And I think it actually fosters um, some of the really negative things that we're seeing in the community. So I think if we actually had a better social safety net that actually took care of everyone's basic needs, I really do actually think that that would eliminate some of the some of the hate and divisiveness that's taking place in our society. So, and to your point, where certain communities feel 
other communities are getting preference or other benefits over them. And that is fueling uh, their kind of bias and uh, prejudice uh, because of those uh, perceptions. And in terms of now we have Afghan refugees, Canada is committed to 40,000 refugees to settle in Canada. Canada had been uh, part of the coalition in the United States and, and many of the people that are coming did work with the Canadian government and, and what have you. So obviously these these are uh, challenging times, especially with online hate. And then these issues that you brought up earlier. Now, in terms of uh, one is our existing community and bridging those uh, those those uh, uh, relationships, but also the newcomers that are coming uh, are going to face many issues and, and obviously uh, culture shock, uh, language, uh, you know, many things across the board, um, and then mental health issues, because as with the Syrian refugees, many of them had uh, PTSD, uh, trauma from horrific uh, um, uh, things witnessed and experienced during war. Um, so these are, these are large challenges. What are your thoughts in terms of all of these issues, and then also supporting mental health issues and, and counseling and really helping people also from their cultural and linguistic needs? Yeah, I mean, yes, is the answer. Um, we don't really functionally have a public mental health support system, uh, system in BC. Most of our mental health services are private. So if you have private insurance, you can pay for a counselor or a psychologist or whatever it is that you need. Um, but that's a very privileged thing to have if you work precariously, if you work part-time work or low-income jobs, you don't often have those benefits. Um, and so we definitely need more public mental health services. And by public, I mean paid for for all of us within embedded within our, our, our nationalized healthcare system. Um, but I think you bring up a really good point, which is that it's not just um, one size fits all with mental health. It really has to be uh, culturally appropriate. We know that the way that different communities under even understand what mental health is is very very different and so uh and, and you know we need it delivered in languages that people feel most comfortable it can't just be even if you speak english you might feel more comfortable speaking about these very nuanced um emotional and vulnerable pieces in, in another language so um we definitely need to invest in that we definitely need uh cultural supports and and i don't think we're doing enough on that one of the things i think that's most horrifying is um since earlier this year, I've actually been uh, volunteering at a place that does food hampers. And as we're putting together the food hampers, we sort of see the names and, and the family sizes because you're deciding what to put in and what the what type of foods they, they want or, or don't want. And seeing the number of names that I think are probably people who came as Syrian refugees, like with large family sizes, and that they're relying on these hampers. It, it's quite horrifying that we invite, we invite in refugees we take care of them for a very short time by meeting their very basic needs. And then we basically leave people, leave people to live in really abject poverty. That is not acceptable to me. So I do think that we need a better system to support folks. If, if we're bringing in these, these people from Afghanistan who are traumatized, we need real wraparound long-term services so that folks can thrive and not just be here. It's not just about moving away from a country where you're at risk of death. It's the ability to actually thrive in the community that you're in. And I, I don't think we're doing a good enough job on that right now, not in close. 
And, and even mental health uh, exacerbates physical health because mental health issues from depression lead to, in some cases, drug dependency, alcoholism, uh, obesity, overeating, and you know various types of uh, physical ills that uh, that become very costly to to uh, society. But uh, if if uh, if all of these issues, as you said, it's a privileged uh, service to have mental health and counseling and things that people need, especially in this time of isolation for many, that this could help stave off all of these other things that do wind up becoming very costly for our healthcare system. And I think it's because it's the unseen uh, health ailment, uh, it's not given as, as larger a priority as, as immediate uh, health issues that were probably exacerbated because of mental health issues that resulted in, in the actual physical health conditions that, are, that become very costly to society. Now, in terms of the will, is there any will, in your opinion, with provincial governments and federal governments to support uh, uh, people to have mental health support? Yeah, that's actually... It's called, you know, this, there's a word for this, and it's a socioeconomic determinants of health. And it's basically that sometimes we see health as just you're healthy or you're not, and there's no factors that contribute, which is obviously not true. Um, we know that poverty contributes, right, uh, to, to being less well. And you're right, it's mental and physical, and these things are connected. In our community, we're very, very lucky to have... Um, an organization called Umbrella Multicultural Health Co-op, which actually provides services to newcomers um, and culturally appropriate and uh, services in, in a lot of different languages. So we're very, very lucky to have that. And um, the city actually does support that with a grant. And the provincial government has provided some long-term funding for them as well, because that is such a vital service. Um, we're also actually working right now as well on addressing alternative responses to crisis. And, and by crisis, I mean, in large part, mental health crisis, but also crisis related to poverty, people who are homeless, um, people who may be struggling with addiction, that we just, because we don't have a lot of services, often the only service that people have is to call 911. And if you call 911, maybe a paramedic shows up, maybe police show up, maybe um, fire shows up that's not the right service for anyone having a mental health crisis. Like those are not, that's not going to help you in the long term. It might in a very short term uh, be able to get you to an emergency room, but that's also not the right long-term approach either. So the city of New West is actually trying to develop a pilot model to um, provide this type of care. And in some of the descriptions of that pilot model, we have talked about it being culturally appropriate um, and trauma-informed, harm-reductive, um, and non-punitive that, you know, if let's say you are struggling with drug addiction and you're having a mental health crisis, we don't want people to not call for help because they're worried about being punished for maybe having drugs on them. I'd rather that they got help and then we can deal with them, you know, deal with the whole system of what they want to deal with as a whole. Um, and I think we also need to be really creative about what that could look like and, and look into other communities to see what kind of models they have had and have. Um, you know, could we have elders as part of that model? Is it actually like cultural connection that you need? So there's a lot of will in our community to, to do this. It's a big uphill battle because it's a bit of a jurisdictional fight, which is never very interesting for folks, but um, healthcare is provincial. Uh, and the city wants to do this as an alternative to having always a police response, which is paid for by municipalities. Um, but there is a lot of interest and will to get this done. And, and I'm very invested in this because I think it's a really deep transform transformative change that will help a lot of people in our community. 
Absolutely. And uh, sharing some knowledge from uh, the downtown east side. So we uh, started something called the Muslim Care Center, where we feed people on the downtown east side. But we piloted something before the pandemic, which was called House Call for Humanity, which was a group of chiropractors volunteering their time to help people with uh, neck and back pain issues. So the philosophy behind it was the lead chiropractor, his name is Dr. Gohar Sheikh. So when he would ask his patients in his clinic, what are you doing to medicate for, for your pain right now? And many of them would say, oh, I'm on certain painkillers or alcohol to manage my pain. And when he would do his treatment over a period of time, the relief of that pain resulted in uh, the people not really having to rely on the alcohol and, and the medication to uh, manage their, their pain. And so the philosophy for the downtown east side, where a lot of people have actual physical pain, neck pain, back pain, you know, certain kind of things where they've never had an adjustment. And again, because it is a privileged service, uh, many people can't afford a chiropractor. So by doing these adjustments, we had uh, a number of people that could walk better. And we had one person who was a young guy who, because of crippling back pain, uh, he wasn't able to work. And then after a few adjustments, he was able to find a job and start working again and got out of that cycle of depression and whatever the case may be. So these kind of novel ideas that, uh, that have practical applications that, uh, again, sometimes, as you said, we're looking at a silver bullet and maybe this is not the cure-all, but it's like one part of it that could be helpful for people that, that need to get out of the cycle of, of pain that leads to depression and addiction. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> thanks for sharing that example. It's such a good example of actually, if you address something upstream, you know, address the pain, it actually can cycle down. So it's not getting the person the job. That's the downstream problem. The pain is actually the upstream problem. We need to find out what those more upstream problems and interventions are. But it's a really good point that a lot of people are living in pain. And we actually uh, tend to just give medication we know that that's contributed to the opioid crisis in some part that people have been dying uh, been given pain medication um but really sometimes it's actually other modes of healthcare. you know chinese medicine um acupuncture yeah chiro or physio uh that would be a better gentler but effective approach to it yeah that's a wonderful example thank you yeah and so now in terms of like new westminster and and really your goals um, uh, going forward. I think there's a municipal election coming up soon. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so obviously you have certain tight cycles in a few years to, to work on, on your agenda, but please tell us your goals and, and, and what you hope to accomplish. And do you plan to run again for the same post or, or do you plan to move on? Yeah, that's, you know, we, it's my first term and I did not expect my first term to have a global pandemic. Um, we've just returned to meeting in person at council chambers and I spent probably half my term so far sitting at my kitchen counter as I am right now talking to my colleagues online and you miss out on a lot of you know those sort of hallway interactions that uh, you gain a lot of knowledge and information from. So the term has certainly not been what I expected it to be. We've had some major, major wins in New Westminster, I think, and things I'm deeply proud of. Um, two that I think are relevant are the climate crisis. I mean, we have seen nonstop climate emergencies, and we know that climate crisis more deeply affects people who are marginalized, so racialized people in large part. Um, so we have basically wrapped everything that we're doing in the city around the climate crisis after we declared a climate crisis in April of 2019. So I think that's really 
good, important work that I'm feeling very proud of and very inspired by and hopeful in these really hard times. We are also doing a lot of work on internal anti-racism. So the term we use is DEER, but it's diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism. And that's really foundational work. So we're not seeing that on the outside yet, but it's actually work on our HR department and our hiring policy. How do we actually make people welcome in our, in our, our organization that is the corporation of the city? So that is work I feel very strongly about. Uh, it's work that needs to continue. It's not something that you sort of check it off and you're done. Um, so we have one year left. I'm really focusing on continuing the climate work, continuing that dear work. Um, I'm also really invested in the alternatives um, alternatives to, to crisis response project. <clears throat> That's probably what I'll be focusing on primarily for my last year. Um, you know, cities move really slow and that's not an insult to our staff at all. It's just the bureaucracy moves really slow. And four years isn't actually as much time to get stuff done as you think it's gonna be. So um, I am looking towards running for another, um, another term. Um, I, there's a lot more work I think that I want to get done and there's a lot of work that I've started that I want to see through to another level. Um, I'm also deeply invested in making these spaces safer for people who haven't been represented here before. We've had a number of city councillors um, and school board trustees in this province resign because they have experienced crushing racism within sitting at their tables and that is unacceptable to me. So um, one of I think about it a lot of being a good ancestor that if I want more people to sit in these seats that have not been represented here before, I need to make it safer for them to do so. So that is some very uninteresting to the public, but for me, very, un very important system change. So working on things like getting a municipal ethics commissioner so that you can actually have a system for filing complaints if you're being harassed or bullied in your position as an elected official. Um, so th this is the work that I'm really invested in. And again, some of it's sort of big dramatic work and some of it's this really quiet structural work. And I think that we need a combination of both. Um, but I also really, I've really enjoyed and, and found a lot of reward from being in this role. I don't think people should stay in them forever. Um, I think that we have to know when to move on. But I think given that the work that I've initiated is just starting to come to fruition, um, I am looking towards running again. And it's October of, of 2022, so not far away. Absolutely. And, and you brought up something very, very timely, the, the climate crisis. And now with, uh, with flooding and uh, the excessive rains, and then uh, and also, our, it seems like our annual wildfire uh, season, which climate change is, is, is wreaking on our province and, and our community. Um, so many, many big challenges. And I believe the federal government's uh, objective is to be net zero by 2030. How realistic do you think that is? I think it is uh, critical. So I hope it's realistic because I don't think we have another choice for survival. And yet I don't see that movement happening. You know, I, I think we, we have to confront the fact that the way that we currently live is untenable for the future. And a lot of that has to do with things like oil and gas subsidies, but also the way we move around our communities, the way we, that we ship goods. Um, it's but I see real opportunity in it as well to have a more equitable system um, where we actually take better care of each other and ourselves. Um, we have a real grind culture right now. And I think 
if we actually re-examined what we wanted, you know, early on in the pandemic, a lot of people were talking about having more spaciousness and moments for contemplation. And um, I, it sounds very hopeful and very optimistic and naive often, but I really do think that uh, we have to address not just those big things like the fossil fuel subsidies, but also the way that we that we are currently living our lives. It's it's unsustainable for folks. It's uh, impacting our mental health and physical health. It's impacting um, how often we get to see our, our elders and spend time in our communities. So um, we have to do it is, is the truth of the matter. So I guess we just, we all keep collectively pushing. Absolutely. And, and even how the climate crisis is affecting uh, global issues and, and climate refugees. So uh, this is going to be, uh, at the moment, there's 84 million refugees in the world today. Um, uh, a number of them because of, of war. Um, so with Afghanistan, with Iraq, with Libya. So many of these people are displaced by uh, foreign interventions. And as a result, many people flee for their lives from their respective countries. But then alternatively, industrialized countries have uh, reaped the benefit of industrialization and causing this uh, climate crisis. But the people that will be directly affected are going to be uh, in the Southern hemispheres that will witness tornadoes, floods, earthquakes in a much more severe fashion than let's say the, the, the European or North American uh, societies because of the way that climate change is affecting geographies around the world. So all of it's intertwined, the climate crisis, refugees. And, and so, so I think uh, it's in everyone's best interest to work on it because if one thing affects the other affects the other. So in terms of uh, solutions for, um, in your mind, recommendations for uh, governments, recommendation for municipal, provincial, federal, and, and the individuals, what everyone can do to participate to, to be part of the solution. Well, I really appreciate you bringing up climate refugees because it's not something I hear talked about enough, that it is already happening and will continue to happen. So one of the things I think that's really critically important in how we, we contemplate solutions is that we keep that global mindset at the forefront. And an example of this from municipalities, like a lot of municipalities, part of their climate adaptation or not climate adaptation, but climate uh, crisis prevention strategy involves shifting from gas powered vehicles to electrical vehicles. So we'll have EV charging strategies, we'll have an electric vehicle strategy, subsidies, et cetera, et cetera, which from our perspective, definitely reduces our community emissions. And those batteries have mining implications in the global south that we just completely ignore, that a lot of people's health is being deeply, deeply impacted by mining for those batteries. So we cannot just look through, sometimes I feel like we're looking through a tiny little microscope at our communities as if we're not connected with this larger picture. And it's such a mistake. And I think it, it replicates environmental racism, which we are complicit in, in so many ways. So that I think is one big piece is making sure that we're not just isolating, yeah, it might be good for our individual community that we reduce those emissions, but is it actually a global solution that is sustainable? I think it's not. Um, so what would be a larger solution? Uh, it's getting people out of actual individual vehicles and creating more public transit and active transportation spaces. That is a more equitable, globally equitable solution. Um, 
so I think there's, we have to keep that in mind and I just don't hear that conversation happening enough. Um, yeah, cities really have a huge role to play in climate. A lot of people actually question us that and say it's just the federal government that should be addressing the climate crisis. It's not true. Cities have are major polluters. So it's doing things like retrofitting buildings, not very glamorous and exciting, but it's real stuff. Um, but I also think that we build communities. So we need to build resilient communities where people can actually meet their needs, where they're connected to each other and where we're actually set up to take care of each other, not just every person for themselves as we have actually seen a lot um, in the past. So that's building housing that actually builds community connections. That's building public green spaces where we can meet our neighbors. Um, these don't necessarily seem like climate solutions, but in my view, they absolutely are. And even, uh with our oceans and uh, and the the amount of overfishing, the destruction of coral reefs, and uh, and so and the plastic waste that's that's uh, being dumped in and other toxic substances into our oceans, and since our oceans make up the majority of our world, um, so that directly affects how uh, what happens to us on land. A case in point: how everything's intertwined. So the massive fishing fleets from Europe and and China will come to places like Africa that don't have uh, large navies to protect their their coast. And as a result, these massive fishing fleets take all the fish and the livelihood of many are taken and they have to do something, either become refugees and come to other countries and what have you. And then the other aspect of fishing is 50% of ocean waste is uh, plastic fishing nets. And so all of that uh, is kind of everything is connected to the other, to the other, to the other. And so these are like, there's larger global issues that are that are causing the climate crisis and then the refugee crisis and, and all, and then obviously leading down into racism, discrimination and what have you, but it's all intertwined. So in terms of these larger kind of initiatives with um, uh, packaging, I think packaging is one of the issues that, that is causing a lot of waste and a lot of, um, and so I know there's been initiatives for plastic straws to be paper straws, but but again, if 50% of ocean waste is, is fishing nets and it's tied to an economy and it's tied to jobs. So it becomes like, uh, you know, which, 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 which area do we tackle first? And I know it's a, a bigger macro picture, but how does, how do local people affect that change? Oh, that's a really big question. That's a hard one. <laughs> it's kind of bleak when you put it like that, but yeah, I guess the way that I approach it is plastic straws is actually a really beautiful example of, you know, so many people were like, yes, we need to ban plastic straws. They kill turtles and they're contributing to ocean waste. And yet a lot of people who are disabled say, actually, we need plastic straws. This is an accessibility issue and it can't be by request because then do I have to validate that I need it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to keep in, um, in mind, I think, a disability justice perspective, um, which is that often we eliminate things that other folks need because we don't personally need them. And when people raise these concerns continuously, we just don't listen. Um, and also it feels really good to black down plastic straws, but like you're saying, that does that's a tip of, it's like, it's not even a tip of the iceberg. That's like 0.0001% of the problem. But we're like, yes, we banned the plastic straws, good for us. Uh, for me, I'm always pushing um, for system solutions rather than individual solutions. So, um, for example, quite often when we're talking about, you know, water scarcity issues, people will be like, well, we need to educate people to take 
shorter showers. And I really disagree with that, actually. I mean, we can do that. But also, as a policymaker, I think we actually need to look at water metering so people can actually pay for the, the actual amount of water that they use. Um, we have to embed some equity into this as well, that um, obviously people who are really you know, poor or low income shouldn't be made even more desperate by this kind of measure. But we know that there's a lot of people just dumping water onto their lawns. Well, we need to disincentivize that action. And, and that's what as a policy, from a policy perspective, we should be doing. So I really always think about organizing around issues that um, the difference, so I mentioned before that I would define myself as an organizer and as an activist. An activist to me is somebody who sort of stands up and says that this is wrong and goes and fights a good fight. An organizer is somebody who brings people together to collectively understand the issue and then decide on collective action. And I really believe in the strength of collective action. Um, no one letter to the Prime Minister of Canada is going to get him to try and pass a policy banning these fishing nets. Um, but people organizing around it and trying to find solutions would. Um, I also think that we have to offer, we, we don't always need all the answers, but I think we have to have some solutions. And I think there's a lot of solutions if we could just get more people and more brains together. Just yesterday, I was having a conversation about how in municipalities, we're trying to switch people to heat pumps as a climate solution, but yet there's a shortage of heat pumps. Well, well that's actually a really good job for people. It's um, a technical job. Um, it would be a, a decent paying job and it would be one that would actually contribute to the climate crisis. So rather than having people work on oil and gas, perhaps we could actually move them into sectors creating heat pumps. So I think we need to be, again, I wouldn't have known that without having that conversation. The more minds we get together, I think the more interconnections we can bring and we can start to bring that analysis of like fishing nets, sort of global imperialism, um, you know, again, extraction from the global south, but also good paying jobs. Like how do we actually intersect these issues? And I think that the more minds we, we bring together, the better solutions we can come up with. So my answer to this is always don't go it alone, organize with more people, try and get in with people who are already in this fight because there's already people working on this topic. Um, so bring your knowledge and expertise into that, into that battle. And I guess the other lesson is too, is we don't ever know when things are going to tip. So sometimes it seems like we're fighting, 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 fighting. You know, this is something in racism for a long time. Uh, residential schools, I'll use as an example. Indigenous people have been yelling about the legacy of residential schools. And then all of a sudden this year, the general Canadian public has woken up to the fact like, oh, residential schools and ha happened were, and were bad. And we never saw that coming. So we don't actually know when issues are going to tip. So I guess it's just sort of getting together and, and combining our, our, our power. And and even uh, the and there uh, they've been here even before the pyramids were built and many tens of millions of people were were wiped out uh, during colonialism but prior to that uh, living in uh, harmony with the land and sustainability and uh, and even to understand the the spirituality of First Nations the people that we've interacted with that they view the land and the trees and the mountains as uh, family or as ancestors that were part of it. So let's say when we're buried, we are food for the animals. We are, uh, we are part of the, the tree. We are part of the mountain and to have that holistic view of nature. And so uh, bringing up another bleak topic is, uh, is uh, deforestation because of cattle and the meat industry, which is the leading cause of greenhouse gas emissions in the world. And that is the, 
the deforestation and the destruction of our old growth forests and it's 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 very uh, disheartening. However, uh, as you mentioned, a green economy incentives for um, ways to uh, to look at the problems and come up with mechanisms to to have solutions. So, um, uh, you've heard of Beyond Meat and the alternative uh, kind of ways to, to have uh, plant based meat that tastes almost or close to to what meat tastes like. And there's even uh, to grow leather in the lab rather than having to slaughter animals for, for less. So there's different things being worked on technologically to, to uh, help mitigate, but, but obviously collective action and uh, united action has to be taken to the largest issues. If cattle, uh, uh, cattle uh, uh, are, are the largest causes of deforestation and uh, and the greenhouse gas emissions that we're facing, then we should tackle the biggest things. If it's the massive fishing fleets around the world that are harming our oceans, so these are all things intertwined with the current economy, and there has to be an alternative economy to switch over to. So these are bigger yeah. issues to to kind of connect to. Um, so on that note, I think education is also an issue, which sometimes. Times we we think people know what we know, uh, but the vast majority, uh, maybe in broad strokes, they may 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 know. But I think a, a continual education uh, to to let folks know because there is a lot of disinformation, and again, just like uh, racism and hate online, there's anti climate or climate deniers or or that type of disinformation. So people are getting educated and saying, well, there is no problem. It's all a bunch of lies by the left. And, and it becomes uh, another thing we're fighting, which is disinformation, which is uh, leading to people not willing to take the drastic steps to, to, to combat the climate crisis. So it seems like, you know, the more I read it, everything's intertwined and everything affects the other. Yeah, isn't that true? Yeah, we always want things to be simple and they're never simple. If you tell me something simple, I, I'm like, oh, I, I, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm, I believe in you now. Um, but I think things are very complex, you're right. And that's what I love about, you know, if you're from the, the West Coast of Canada here, you'll often hear um, the local nations say all my relations. And it's sort of like, yes, it's my relations, it's my ancestors, but you're right, it's being in relationship to the trees and the flowers and the birds and everything. and. Um, I think welcoming that complexity and allowing things to be complex and not shying away from, from that and saying that things have to be simple for it to be true. Um, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And in terms of uh, education and initiatives to educate the public, the people of New Westminster and, and even, uh, even about racism, because a, a shocking thing that I've learned in, in the work that we've done is uh, there's a, a certain quarter that doesn't believe racism exists in, in Canada. And so, and then generally these are folks that have never experienced racism and have never experienced uh, racial slurs or discrimination because of their religion, their, their physical appearance or, or their country of origin. Um, so education, what are your thoughts? Because for the feminist uh, uh, campaign and, and other things that you're doing to help uh, various community members, please talk about the role of education, how we can, really, you know, get folks uh, to understand these very important issues? Yeah, this is this is a really interesting question. Um, yeah, I hear it all the time because I talk about racism a lot and I do a lot of work on, on racism issues. And I hear a lot that people say, well, I've never experienced racism, that's not a thing here. 
I also hear a lot that we're importing American problems and that's not a Canadian problem. Um, I think that this past couple of years has, there's been a lot to dis dispel that. Um, I've often personally felt that it's a bit of, um, if you are, if you are dismissing the experience of racism, I think you're actually choosing to, to be ignorant to it. So that's much harder to address because if you listen to the news or you listen to anything or read anything, um, there's a lot of stories out there, you know, just in our, our like five o'clock news. So I think people sometimes are often choosing not to. And I think that's a different problem. Um, that we are challenging their way of understanding the world or also unsettling their position of, of power. Because if you admit that racism is real, then what, then what happens, right? I think a lot of the myth of meritocracy falls apart, that people get things because they've earned it. And that's a lot of the foundation of our society. So I think there's, there's a couple different issues. Is one is that some people don't know, and then some people choose to disbelieve. I think about the idea that I, I personally would not describe myself as somebody who uh, attempts to educate or work with people who are dismissive of racism. That's not something that I feel that I have the personal capacity for or the expertise or the patience or anything. I, I think about the idea that there's, there's a group of people who I'm trying to pull a little bit further. And I think that there's lots of folks along that line and we all need to take responsibility for people in our sort of circles to pull them a little bit closer towards justice or equity or anti-racism. And so I think there's people out there who are doing that work, working with those folks who are disbelievers. Um, but I, I also somewhat believe sometimes we just need to go ahead. We just need to forge ahead and not wait for everybody to agree. Because if we're waiting for everybody to agree that racism is a problem, we're never gonna do anything about it. So um, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, his position from what I took from his book is that sometimes we just need to pass anti-racist policy and see that the world doesn't fall apart and then people will actually come along. And that's another way to address it. So I think it's a mix of all the things that sometimes we just need to, to move boldly. There needs to be people sort of on that vanguard. There also needs to be some people who are sort of taking others by the hand and being like, okay, come read this book, come engage in this conversation with me, come listen to this, this talk. Um, so we need different levels. And as far as the people who are really denying, I guess it's my personal opinion that I don't think it's a lack of education. I think it's a personal worldview piece. And I think at a certain point, we just have to, um, we have to let it go that we're never going to have everyone agree with us or like us. And um, I think we can just make the world more fair and a better place because I truly think that anti-racism, even if you've never experienced ra racism, anti-racism initiatives will actually make the world better for you as well. Yeah. And, and sometimes people think it's subjective. And now we have facts because um, there's an initiative with Google called Jigsaw, which uh, they share with various anti-racist groups, uh, the actual hate-related searches people search for right down to the city, down to the postal code, that what are people searching for? So for white supremacist searches, how to kill Muslims. And uh, so all of these things. And so to even show facts, like we've got the data, we've got the research. So um, all of these things as, as a way to, to also not just have the anecdotal evidence, but the actual hard evidence from uh, these, uh, these uh, credible sources to show that these things are, are happening. And then also there's a language of racism that we didn't understand. I'll share with you from the Muslim community. So there's coded terms that are used. And so the number one term, anti-Muslim uh, racist term in 
North America and Europe is remove kebab. So you're like, what is remove kebab? Like, that sounds funny. I, I actually laughed until I, I learned more about it. So in the 1990s, the Bosnian-Serbian conflict, the Serbian uh, government or the, the people or the militias, uh, they would play a, an anthem called remove kebab while they were committing genocide and ethnic cleansing of, of the Bosnians. So that was, that's what it was called, remove kebab. And so it gets a little bit uh, more insidious or quite a lot more, whereas the Christchurch shooter uh, when he was on his way in the car to drive to the mosques to initiate his his attack which killed close to 50 or more people in new zealand in christchurch was playing the anthem remove kebab so so the average person doesn't know what that means but the coded term so the language of racism is a bit different for each community yeah then, yeah so so yeah. that yeah, they're, they're dog whistles, right? That if you don't hear it, you don't hear it. But for the people who hear it, they go, yeah, I know what that is. And often yeah. we don't know how to listen for it. it. It reminds me of the flip side of microaggressions, which are like those small kind of coded, like little paper cuts of racism. I The most sort of harm I've experienced in racism is actually microaggressions. And it's also trying to explain to somebody else, like maybe a friend or a loved one, that that what, what happened to me was an experience of racism and then going, oh, you're blowing it out of proportion, that's not racist, because they don't hear it and they don't experience it as such. But once you know to hear it, you're like, that's racism. But then it's gaslighting because people deny your experience of that, right? That they're like, that's not, that wasn't what you thought it was. They were just listening to that song. It's not a thing. Um, it's insidious and it's tricky and it's, I find that very, that's very difficult to deal with and very scary because again, they're, they're dog whistling at each other. Sometimes we're learning to hear it and sometimes we're not. And uh, we, we were both on uh, uh, a program called Stop Asian Hate back in May and, uh, and some of the language of discrimination uh, against the Asian community, which during the pandemic, uh, anti-Asian hate had gone up. 704 sorry 814 percent uh from the year previous and many attacks were sadly on elderly people and on on women and in a similar fashion islamophobia many attacks are on women that wear hijab so so these uh, these type of things and and so the language in asian hate so some of the the themes are um people that, that have an Asian appearance are agents of the, the communist Chinese government or memes, bat soup, and spreading those memes and kind of sowing uh, this type of uh, distrust or, or hate towards uh, a, a visible community. Um, and so, so these, are, these are kind of different things where, you know, this siloed type community work that many many of us do that to work across the silos with every community because racism affects all of us differently black racism is different asian racism there are similarities but differences but to say that one generic uh solution doesn't necessarily help the other community and then another key issue what we found is some communities really do not want to engage police However, they have no desire to engage police and other communities are wholeheartedly uh, happy to engage with police. So these are 
other kind of issues that we've we've come to is that in terms of racism and discrimination, it's very different for, for each different community. And that really to, and again, building community to really build a stronger community, we have to cross the silos of each community and somebody has to take that first step. And when you do take that first step to build relationships, friendships and, and allies, uh, there is criticism from all quarters to, to kind of try and do the right thing. So, so this type of silo busting and crossing all community and cultures and, and work with others, I think, would you agree that for all of us to take that step in our respective areas of, of influence to cross these silos, to work with all the communities and understand them better because it is uniquely different for each community? Yeah, you know, I, there's, I'm sure we have both been talking about that for a long time. I remember back in 2019, making this comment to CBC about this, that, um, you know, there was, I, I got asked to speak about something that had happened with Ilhan Omar, um, who's a, a representative in the States, who's a black Muslim woman. And I was like, well, I'm not a black Muslim woman. I'm neither, none, none of these things. Um, but anyways, I ended up talking about it and basically saying, like, you have to recognize that the racism that the black community experiences is different than the racism that the Asian community experiences. There are some similarities and then there's some real differences. Like some people are much more likely to, um, to experience like violent racism. Um, and so we have to address that. And, and your, very, your point about police is exactly right. Like our stats on, on hate crimes is very wrong because some people don't report because they do not feel safe to report. So I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that's why we have to deepen our analysis that like as, Asian, as a member of the Asian community, if our answer for racism is just call the police, we need more police on our streets, which some people have called for, recognize that that makes black people often and, and indigenous people often feel less safe. So our solutions have to have um, an aspect of solidarity to them. And we have to be, we have to be pulling up each other because um, otherwise we are just stepping on each other to, 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 you know, avoid harm. But if I'm putting the Muslim community at risk by my anti-racist solutions and they're not anti-racist, they are in fact still harmful. So um, I absolutely agree that we have to come together to understand what is, what the actual impacts are, what people are understanding experiencing, have that intersectional analysis of gender, age, disability, class, all those things. Um, and yeah, and come together and fight for all of us. Because if we lift up the people who are most oppressed, all of us are going to be, all of us are going to be caught up in that. And we're, you know, the, the rising tide lifts all boats. So I, I completely agree that we need more, more communication across. And, and as you said, statistics, because at the moment, Statistics Canada, the reporting of hate is based on a charged crime, uh, an actual charged crime. And then if there's a hate component, that's added at sentencing. So there's a, an assault, that's the crime. And then if it's deemed to be uh, a, a racially motivated, then that's added uh, at the time of sentencing. So, so the microaggressions that you mentioned before, the verbal abuse that is not necessarily a crime, but but harmful and traumatic to people. And, and you know, certain traffic incidents or, or you know, even in the educational settings where, where an instructor or a professor or a teacher can say a very cutting racist thing to, to, to a young person. We, we've learned that in the Muslim community where demeaning Islam or demeaning Islamic practices is almost like commonplace in some quarters. So, and other communities may face it uh, uh, in black communities, certain 
issues in the black community wouldn't be effectively addressed in certain cases in a high school setting and, and racist uh, incidents occurred and the the actual faculty not not necessarily supporting the, the families the way that uh, that uh, the family felt supported so these are all things that are happening and to be able to report those and have some meaningful statistics around that uh, to help show that these things are happening to all the different communities and have people comfortable to report them and these reports to go to city councils to go to uh, provincial governments to local universities that that study these sorts of things and even police if 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 uh, just for for people to know we've done presentations on islamophobia for law enforcement and so uh, one of the police chiefs says uh, they sit on the uh, the bc association of police chiefs and uh, all of them are white caucasian men that are uh, that are in their 50s and 60s so their level of understanding is just going to be their own personal experience so they won't necessarily know what what's happening to people or how people are feeling uh discrimination so there's a lot of nuanced work we have to do so we're almost at our time in in closing we've unpacked a lot of things about the environment anti-racism, community work. What are key takeaways that you would like to, to leave our audience and, and that you would like to share? It's not all gloom and doom. There, there's a lot of great things happening. We live in a great country. People like yourself are, are, are at the front line of doing great work for the community. Uh, please uh, give us some, some, some takeaways for everybody to, to be encouraged to kind of get involved and, and be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think it's that one of the big pieces for me is that representation absolutely does matter, but it matters when it's tied with values. So it's not tokenistic representation. It's not people um, just sitting in these positions um, and not actually doing change on behalf of the communities. We really need to tie that value-based work in with that representation. Um, but, but I think that is happening and we are seeing some really deep changes. Um, I'm also really hopeful about some of the youth organizing that's going on. Um, their understanding of anti-racism, of decolonization, of gender issues is really, really deeply inspiring. Um, they, you know, the youth in their teens right now knew so know so much more than I did at that age. They know so much more than I do now in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think it's that boldness and the braveness and, and advocating for courageous solutions, even if they seem wild. Um, I, I'm really deeply inspired by that because they're really truly fighting for their future and their ability to survive. Um, and so there's so much inspiring and amazing leadership there. Um, I'm also inspired by organizations like what like like yours that that are doing really great work and talking about these hard issues. Um, we can't just shy away from them. I think too, too many times for too many years, I've seen people just want to avoid these conversations. And now we have to be able to talk about them. You know, we have to be able to name what is happening. We, it has to be, you know, Islamophobia, anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, violence against Asian community, gender-based violence. We have to be able to name those things. Um, people often basically say that talking about racism causes racism. And that's, absolutely not the case. Every time we have conversations like this, I think we illuminate the complexities and the intersections of these things. Um, and we provide opportunities for people to better understand and come along with us. And I, I think the number one, the number one, you know, sort of takeaway for me is always just, if people tell you that they've had an experience, believe them, right? If somebody tells you that something is racist, we don't have to debate it. We can just believe them and move on from there and look again to join together and find solutions because 
there is so much good work happening right now, even though it's you know really really bleak and really dark. Um, some of the most exciting work, some some conversations that I never thought I'd have a chance to be part of, um, were really leaping forward in leaps and bounds. And I think that it's hard to see it when you're in that sort of period. I, I think a lot about moths and butterflies and they go into the cocoon and often we just see our myth is that they come out as this beautiful butterfly, but really that part in the cocoon is messy and painful. And I feel like we're in that cocoon right now, but that there's something really beautiful coming. We're just almost there, but we don't see it yet. Absolutely. And, you know, just to share with, with you our experience. Uh, so we did something called the interfaith exchange where we would go to churches, synagogues, and other places of worship as friends and neighbors to join services and answer questions about the Muslim community and, and what have you. And one of the most amazing things we learned is many people said they'd never met a Muslim before. And uh, so if you never met a Muslim before, obviously you're going to believe whatever uh, is being being spouted online or in the media. And in a similar fashion, many people from our community, when we invited the Jewish community to our mosque, said never met a Jewish person before. So even just the act of meeting one another. So a couple of key things that we're doing. Um, so we're doing something called the Anti-Racism Happy Hour, which uh, the next one is going to be in Vancouver, where we're inviting various members of different communities and the general public to come and we'll sponsor the coffee and tea and sit together, break bread and, uh, and really, if they've never met a black person, a Jewish person, a, a Muslim person, they have an opportunity to sit down and ask those questions, whatever they're their issues are. So that's that's one thing we're doing. And then the other thing is on a systemic level. So we formed something called the other people. And that is with uh, leaders of the Muslim community, uh, indigenous community. So Jody Wilson Raybould, who's the former attorney general and minister of justice, uh, representing First Nations, Rabbi Bregman from uh, Temple Shalom and the Jewish Federation, myself and Yusuf from the BC Muslim Association. And then we've got the black community and, uh, and the Sikh community and also uh, uh, Terry Young from uh, from the VPD, who as a police officer, as well as a, an Asian person to talk on those fronts. So we're, we're going to be speaking at various high schools. So our first event is going to be at the King David Secondary School in Vancouver, and then uh, another high school in Richmond. So if there's any interest for this comprehensive representation of our, our community leaders to speak at various schools in New Westminster, we'd be happy to send you our, our programs and at least work together in allyship and, and be part of that change. Amazing. I would be very happy to pass that along to our school board. Our actual um, previous chair of our school board is actually a Muslim woman, uh, Anita Ansari, and uh, the current chair is Gervin Dollywell, who's a sick woman. So we have amazing diversity. So I think there'd be a lot of interest in, in New West from that. Fantastic. Well, we'll send that over. And thank you very much, Nadine. Nadine Nakagawa, City Councilor for New Westminster. We really appreciate your time and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, it really was a pleasure. Nice to speak with you again.